This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you love underground music and movies, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed shirts, vinyl, CDs, and more. Go to portlanddistro.com. Plug in the discount code MikeHill666 for 15% off at portlanddistro.com. Hey everybody, it's time for Everything Went Black, the Road to Ruin episode, where uh, I got Randy here on the line. How's it going, Randy? Good, man. Good. How you doing? Doing all right. And, uh, you know, we're moving towards doing this live all the time, but sometimes, you know, life and responsibilities and things like that get in the way, but uh, we want to stay on schedule, so we're doing this episode uh, remotely, you know. Yeah, there's a little, little bit of distance between us, so it doesn't work out perfectly all the time. But hopefully we'll do more in person than not. We also got some big plans for involving other people of note with these uh, these particular episodes. Similar to uh, the one we did with Jeff. And um, a lot of thanks, for, you know, everyone, thanks for listening. And also thanks to Jeff for carving out some time to hang with us. You know, that was definitely cool. Yeah, definitely. That was our first attempt to kind of move in the direction. I think we want to take some of this stuff and have him have it a guest, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it was a pretty uh, successful experiment. Uh, people seem to like it. And like Mike said, thanks for listening. Um, so hope to do more of that in the future. Also, it, it was just fun to see Jeff. I, I haven't seen him in a, a few years, man. And, and it was good to, for all three of us to get together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think we did that maybe like three years ago. And then, uh, that was the first time we were in a room together in three years. It's kind of kind of cool. It's definitely fun. And I have to give you credit, man, for really, like, you you really came prepared, man, like, with your questions, dude. I, I have to give you, like, a lot of credit for that, man. Like, uh, you, know, you put definitely put some solid effort into that, you know? Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was kind of easy because, you know, I know those guys pretty well. Jeff's a real close friend. You know, I... <laughs> Uh, spent a lot of time with those guys. My old band was on Hydrahead Records, and I was in ISIS for a second, the very beginning. So, so you know, it was pretty pretty easy. But yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. So before we get going, uh, I wanted to just I got some troubling news uh, for you know any, for anyone out actually who lives in this area, man, like in the tri-state area, that uh, a long-standing place that has been integral in the independent music scene down here uh, is closing as of July 1st. And uh, that's Vintage Vinyl down here in Fords, New Jersey. And it's really a bummer, man. There's like so much history there. And um, I've been going there for years. And it's uh, it's been like a destination for a lot of people. Like I, there are dudes I know from like Pennsylvania that are like, oh yeah, Vintage Vinyl it's like, I love going there and buying records and they have a huge metal section and they used to have live events there. And um, so there's only a, by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be closed, but I'm probably going to pop in there tonight and see if I can grab a couple things before the doors close. Yeah, man, I, I found out about that this week too. And although, you know, I live up in Connecticut, that was like, if I was going down to Jersey, I mean, I always started going there a couple of years ago, but you know, every time I go to your place, there were a few times I've been down, that's on my radar, you know? Um, it's a shame to see a, a great store like that closing. 
Yeah, man. And and it sucks that it's like on the heels of like this pandemic and everything. Because like, you know, you go in there, you got to wear a mask. You know, there's like that right. plexiglass thing around the cash register. And it, w- it would have been nice to at least have things go back to the way they were before they close the doors. But hey, man, from what I understand... The owners are just ready to retire and they just want to get out of the business, which, you know, I guess makes sense to me. Yeah, I'm sure it's grueling. You know, they're probably most of their lives been there seven days a week. And, you know, uh, all good things must pass. Right. Just like, uh, you know, we always mention our one of our all time favorite record stores, Trash American Style. Yeah. Uh, We can't record an episode without talking about Malcolm and Trash. But that was the same kind of sadness years ago when, you know, when he told me they were closing. And I know it had the same effect on you. It's just like you look at these places as more than retail stores. You know, they're like uh, <laughs> they're kind of vehicles for 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 the arts. You know, uh, it's just it's a shame. Yeah. And and, uh, you know, with unfortunately, though, with Malcolm, it was there was some scumbaggery that was behind the scenes. You know, and it had nothing to do with with business, man. It was just like some underhanded shit that happened. Right. Uh, yeah, different situation, but still another great uh, store down the drain, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I got to hustle down there, man, because uh, I want to get some photos. Uh, every, every time I go in there, I want to buy a T-shirt. I'm going to buy a T-shirt at the very least and, you know, see right. what they got going on. But, you know, the thing that, I used to love looking at all the photos they had of the different bands that have done in stores there, you know, and, Oh, oh yeah. You know, and I, I always, I always grab I always settle on, there's a picture of morbid angel in there. Uh, when Eric Rutan was in, was in the band and I thought how, how fucking special that was. Cause Rutan is from New Jersey. And I mean, you know, that idea that just, just for a minute, well, first of all, just let's give some respect to Eric Rutan, who played in Morbid Angel, Ripping Corpse. He had uh, Hate Eternal, or he has Hate Eternal, right, and, now, right. and now he's in Cannibal Corpse. The guy's played in like the finest of the, the top of the top, the, the elite of death metal. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> and and like at the time, you, you're this this shredder guitar player. You know, from from uh, from Jersey, you got Ripping Corpse. You know, which is like we were a great band, but they were definitely you know, on on the fringe. Right. And, and then you have an opportunity to do music for a living in Morbid Angel, and then you come back on some gigantic tour and you do an in store at Vintage Vinyl, which is like you're kind of like you know hometown, or, you know homecoming. You know. Right. Right. And I always think that's like the coolest photograph there. Just I mean, just because I you know we. I've worked with Eric Rutan in a couple of Tombs records, and he and I have gotten to be pre- pretty good friends over the years. And and I know that that's the kind of thing that would would really be meaningful to him too. You know. Sure. Yeah. You know, you know all those bands, obviously, uh, kind of the cream of the crop, <laughs> death metal. But uh, his work as an engineer and a producer, you know, is uh, he's done a lot of great records and a lot of great work in the studio as well. So. Um, yeah, man, I, that's, that store is so big and so cool and, like, overwhelming if you've never been in there before. Like, the first couple times I went in there, like, I found myself staring at the walls more than flipping through records because there's just so much history in there, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm probably yeah. going to go after we wrap this up and get something and maybe I'll grab a couple slices at that pizza place next door, you know? 
Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, grab me some records, too, will you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of studios and records, you got some news about uh, forthcoming projects. Uh, yeah, I mean, more so one in particular than uh, some other stuff is kind of cooking on the back burner, but, you know, things are getting busy in the in the world of Come to Grief, the band I joined right before this pandemic <laughs> started. Uh, we're going to be heading into the studio uh, in the middle of July, uh, recording our first full-length album. Uh, not sure who's putting it out yet, uh, or you know how it'll be out, but it'll be out early 2022. So we've been practicing hard for that. Been back at it since I don't know, maybe the end of April. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be going uh, into God City up in Salem. Recording the record, and then we got uh, gonna have some show announcements real soon. Just confirming some stuff for this year, and then uh, hopefully a lot of touring next year. Nice, you know? that's awesome. Yeah, pretty pretty excited, man. Yeah, and you know we're gonna try to try to do some now now that we're back to traveling interstate and being with people again. I'm gonna try to get some kind of um, episode together. You know. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So actually, uh, who? Who from Grief is in the band? Like, what's what's the breakdown of the band? I mean, you know, just out of curiosity. Yeah, so this is a, you know, a lot of people are confused about Come to Grief when they kind of formed, I guess maybe around five or six years ago, uh, because the logo looked a lot, the word Grief and Come to Grief looked a lot like the logo from the band Grief. And that's because <laughs> the founding member of Grief, uh, Terry Savastano, formed come to grief um so he's uh you know he was the founding member of grief he's also the founding member of come to grief the drummer in come to grief played on the last grief studio album before they split up um so that that, that's the grief connection uh the singer and guitar player jonathan have no connection to the old band grief i don't have any connection to the old band grief either other than being a massive fan my whole life, you know? So it's a real honor for me to be able to play with these guys. And we do still play uh, some grief material, but it's songs that Terry wrote, not songs that anybody else in the band wrote. Um, yeah, that's like the, the short version. <laughs> that's awesome, man. And and I remember um, this kid that I, when I used to work, when I lived in Boston, I worked at the Newberry Comics Warehouse for a bit, you know, for you know, a couple of years. Yep. Along with everyone else that played in games. <laughs> right. And there was this kid. I wouldn't, you know, he's one of those people. You ever, you ever have anyone in your life where you don't really like them, but you're friendly, but you kind of don't like the guy? You know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's like fucking... Like, 80% of the people I know. <laughs> like, you don't really like the guy, but you guys are cordial, and you, you find yourself hanging out occasionally, but you're, you're, he's not someone you would actually consider a friend. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, yeah, so yeah totally. There's this guy. There was this guy that, uh, you know, at the work there, and he was um, involved in, like, that kind of crusty, like, you know, shows. Like, there would be shows at the um, Harvest Co-op basement. You know? Oh yeah, I played. I played there a few times. And and he would be like one of those guys. Maybe he organized the show or something like that. And um, you know, he would be at those shows. Like, you know, and, and he actually sold me, um, the grief record. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he had a distro or whatever his deal was. Because, you know, back in those days, you'd go to shows and there'd be like distros, people selling records. Yeah. So my yeah. assumption is that he had a distro or maybe he, sh- he did sold stuff at shows. But he recommended this band Grief because I liked I Hate God. And, um, you know, Buzz Oven and His Hero's Gone and like all that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, and he was like, yeah, you know, you probably would like this band. And um, he played like a cassette, like back back then when you listened to cassette tapes in the warehouse. And, uh, and like I was like, oh, this is sick, you know. So they go, like, oh, I'll, I'll sell you one of their records out of my distro or whatever, you know, I'm assuming. And so then the next day he came in, I bought like their LP and I was like, yeah, this is great, you know. And, and since then I've been friends and that was like, nine, I'm not friends, but uh, fans of Grief. And I was back from like maybe 97, 96, 97, something like that. So I've been, I've been, I've been enjoying their music for quite a while at this point. So I'm excited, long story short, that there's uh, activity surrounding that group of people. Yeah, man. Yeah, I'm very excited to be playing with those guys. You know, it's, it's an honor for me to play with Terry. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him as, as a person and a, a songwriter. I, enjoyed his music for years and uh you know you you brought up like the crusty angle terry was also a founding member of the band disrupt yes uh which was you know pretty important band in that world for for a few years you know unfortunately they didn't last that long but they did a lot um you know put out a full length a lot of seven inches and uh different stuff a lot of compilations they toured europe and uh that band's also pretty legendary band so it's uh you know it's a real honor getting to play with Terry and make music with him and stuff. So I'm, I'm a big disrupt fan as well uh, as grief. So yeah, disrupt, yeah. you know, like siege, like all those bands are pretty legendary, like you know, Massachusetts, greater yeah. Boston area. And um, grief though, they, there was like that suburban metal quote unquote thing that was going on with like grief and anal cunt, uh, yep. you know, nightstick, which is another band that's like, I've seen Nightstick perform live, and it was like definitely hit or miss. They're either going to be the greatest band you've ever seen or the worst band you've ever right. seen. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> yeah, have you ever seen them, Night, Nightstick? I've seen them a couple times. At one time, they blew my mind. One time, it was like it was still interesting and fun, but it was like a train wreck. It was like insanity. I was like, "What the fuck is going on?" But but yeah, so I completely understand what you're saying when you say that. And, and there's there's definitely a sketchy angle with that band too. Oh yeah, very drug you know like oriented. Uh, yeah, you know like similar to Buzz. And I don't know any of the guys necessarily in Nightstick, but my impression of of them was that they're, they're similar to the type of people that would play in Buzz Oven. Like they might have like robbed robbed convenience stores and used drugs <laughs> and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Well, they also had. <laughs> They added nightstick added to their sketchy element by the remember the dancing yeah, clown. Yeah, the clown. Yep. <laughs> I can't like, remember the name. Wow. I can't remember the name of the clown. What was the name of the clown? You remember? No. Fuck. But I, I did see that. I saw Nightstick open a show. They played um is a, this is actually a pretty cool bill. It was Masana and Mersbau, like those noise bands from Japan. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Japanese guys. Yep. Yeah. And then there was um this other band that Scott Hall played in that's was called like the something torture hour. The name's escaping me. Was it, oh, was it the, 
Is it the Japanese comedy torture That's hour? It. Yes, yeah. And okay. I want to say that Jay Randall was involved in that too, right? I think he was, yes. Yeah. Someone please oh. uh, confirm that. I'm talking off the top of my head right now, so I might be wrong about all this. But uh, So they played, and then Nightstick went on first. And and they had like this really sick tone. And yes. I'm like, yeah, this is like definitely some like, outsider music, man. And, and the clown. <laughs> and I was like this this clown doing this interpretive dance. And I was like, wait, is this is this like really who is this guy? You know, who the fuck is up there doing this dance? <laughs> and and then after I'm like, I thought that was I mean, hey, it was the nineties, you know, there's like people expressing themselves freely, you know, and, and I thought maybe we're at we're at a noise show, which is already kind of like a fringe type right. of environment, you know, and there's like some definite like trench coat style people like at the show <laughs> and uh i'm like well maybe this is like a audience member you know just kind of feeling it oh okay yeah, but it, it turns out that they do that every single time they play and he's actually a band member well i just got a i just got a message here from the research department <laughs> just came across the wire here in my basement and uh <laughs> The clown uh, was considered a uh, fourth member of the band, uh, and it's Pudwinka, the clown. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Of course. Of course it is. And uh, just, you know, for people who don't know Nightstick, Nightstick was basically formed uh, by uh, Rob Williams, who is the ex-drummer of Siege, and the current drummer, because I think Siege has reunited a few oh. years back. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, I actually saw him twice. Holy shit. Probably like four years ago. Obviously, a different lead vocalist because the singer passed away yeah. years ago. Um, but yeah, they reformed and they, they, they've played a bunch of shows over the last, well, not over the last year, but, <laughs> you know, the previous couple of years pre-COVID. And I got to see them a couple of times and they were, they were great. And I also seen Nightstick. They reformed not too long ago, maybe more like five or six years ago. Um, and I saw them too because... Uh, Armageddon Records out of Providence, they uh, reissued uh, the Blotter, Nightstick Blotter LP yep. from 1996 that was originally on Relapse. They did a nice vinyl reissue of that, um, which is available through Armageddon Shop. If anyone wants to pick that up, it's it's totally worth it. Um, so yeah, that's that was like that weird scene, uh, Weymouth, Massachusetts. Yes. Is where Siege and Nightstick were born. <laughs> yeah, it's like that weird suburban, like outsiders, you know, playing music. That's that's like some of my favorite. Like, they're not city dudes, you know what I mean? They're not guys who are like necessarily like they would travel into the city. You know, they didn't live right. And I always thought that that kind of stuff was like more more of my kind of thing. Like even like I would you know this is a totally different band, but Rorschach, like how they lived in Jersey. They they weren't living like on the Lower East Side or anything like that. You know what I mean? Right, right. And it, yeah, not really like what quote unquote scenester guys. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's more like these guys who probably go to work. You know, at like a fucking garbage dump every day. Or <laughs> garbage dump. <laughs> or you know, some fucking shitty warehouse job out in the fucking burb somewhere, and then like they get together and make this fucked up music. But they're not like. You know, they're not hanging out at the cool coffee shops, or, you know, on Boylston Street or what, or whatever, you know, right. yeah. uh, Newberry Street, Boston, or whatever, you know, it's kind of like you said, like fringe, kind of get the feel, even if they weren't, you get the feeling like it's very fringe uh, music, 
I would I would even put Black Flag kind of in that, like even going further, you know, going back because they you know, sure. they, they lived yeah. they didn't live in L.A. As a matter of fact, they kind of were like opposed to like the L.A. like punk vibe. You right. know, they were like from Hermosa Beach or wherever they were setting up shop at the time, but it was like a beach. They were from like the beach, you know. what I mean, they were dudes who didn't have like spiked haircuts and leather jackets. You know, they were like right, right, regular suburban type dudes that just would play gigs like in the city. You know, yeah. Grief was definitely part of that whole scene. You know what I mean? They were they weren't the cool guys either. <laughs> they weren't they weren't really the seamsters either. Um, but what I you know what I loved about them uh, is the same thing I loved about the first time I heard I Hate God, the first time I heard Buzz Oven two of my all-time favorites uh what i loved about grief was you know it's definitely sludgy doomy slow metal edge but it it sounds like punk rock and that's something all three of those bands to me have in common like when grief does play the occasional fast part it sounds like you know a punk band so it's like poison idea playing a fast part or something like that like uh, which is what I love about it. It's not, you know, I love Candlemass, I love Pentagram, and I love classic Doom, and I love Sleep, and all, all that kind of stuff. But what I like about, you know, Grief and I Hate God, Buzz of it is it has that, just has that grittiness, that nastiness that relates back to like, you know, later Black Flag and just like the punk ethos kind of thing. Um, I like that about those bands. Totally, and, and I, you know, they're. There's similar other bands I really dug that had that vibe. Well, I would even say Winter was like that, and and yes. um, you know Nuth Crush was another band that comes to mind. And yep. um, you know these are different, slightly different eras, obviously. You know, and Dystopia possibly. Yeah, yeah I think Grief played shows with all those bands at yeah. one point. You know, so uh, yeah, but yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff going to be happening soon, and the. In the come to grief world if anyone was interested in checking it out we'll have all the socials you know instagram facebook Bandcamp, coming to grief Bandcamp. or unfortunately sold out of pretty much all the all the records and tapes and stuff right now but we'll be uh restocking stuff soon we got a new shirt up for pre-order that's Grab a good that. uh, that's a good that's a good position to be in man yeah. yeah, yeah, it's better than it's better than my old band where I get like you know half the pressing and then just put it in my closet. You give it, give it away to your friends and stuff. Give it away. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling, man. <laughs> so yeah, man, there's a lot, a lot of action about to happen after a year of us kind of just sitting around not being able to do anything. We're finding the ball's going to start rolling and uh, hopefully be out there, meet, hopefully meeting some of the people that listen to the show. You know. Right on, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm definitely. Like we were talking about some dates, and you know, you probably can't announce them, but I'll, I'll be at I'll be at some of those dates for sure, man. When you guys are playing, yeah, because that'd be great, man. Yeah, they're they're real close to being announced, but this one of them got us hung up, so I don't want to announce shit that's not confirmed, you know. Yeah, no, you got you got to do things the right way. You know what I mean? Yeah, for once. <laughs> for once. Let me give it a try. Let me yeah. give it a try. <laughs> So anything else new, man? Like, uh, or you want to get into the subject of today's episode? Yeah, man. Let's uh, let's get into it. I'll, I'll have more to report probably the next time we, we do this. Right on. Uh, some, some more concrete evidence. But yeah, let's uh, let's kick it. So we're going to talk about Andrew Dice Clay, and uh, you guys might th- wonder why the fuck we're doing that. But uh, <laughs> there's there's definitely a point to all of this. I'm going to say, and uh, a lot of it has to do with free speech. Which, um, 
We touched on that during the Gigi Allen episode. And uh, just like, um, you know, just like a recognition and, um, of something that might be unpleasant for people, but also deserves to have the right to be unpleasant. So that's why we're, uh, we're picking Andrew Dice Clay. And we're also going to talk about his uh, groundbreaking com- live comedy album, The Day the Laughter Died. Yes. And, uh, you know, and I mean, just for the record, Randy and I both are fans of Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, yeah. I was going to say I was going to follow you up with that. <laughs> yeah. Just to be just to be clear, uh, you know, there are other angles to this, but I am a huge lifelong fan uh, of Andrew Dice Clay. And for my birthday a few years back, me and Mike went to see Andrew Dice Clay in the in the beautiful city of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Yeah, I like going to weird towns like that to see shows, man, honestly, you know. Well, it was pretty weird, wouldn't you say? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever been to Bridgeport maybe one other time in my life, you know. So it was right. for me, it was like, uh, you know, I'm like, yeah, what, a, what a cool idea to go see a comedy show there. And I, and I gotta say, I have to admit that I'm not, I'm, I'm not what you would call a fan of comedy per se. You know what I mean? Dude, neither am I. Neither yeah. am I. Uh, I, I, some people are like fans, like Jeff, for example, or Jeff Kashid's a fan. He likes comedy. He goes out to these events and sees them right. perform. And I've only seen two, three comedy shows ever, and Dice Clay was one of them. Uh, I've only seen three as well. <laughs> Dice Clay was one of them. What were your other two? Uh, Doug Stanhope, who, who also is a very uh, unusual guy in the comedy world, really. Yeah, I would say a one of a kind, you know, really in a lot of ways. And um, I saw Bobby Kelly, who's like okay. uh, a, a guy that did PR for our the band, was able to connect me on and get, put me on like a guest list for it. It was at like uh, like Caroline's or something like that in New York City. Yeah, so you know, I I seen uh, my first two comedy shows were George Carlin, which I'm a huge fan of. He's one of my favorites of all time, you know, besides Dice. So I, you know, I'm not a huge comedy fan either. As a matter of fact, a lot of people talk about it. Hey, have you seen this guy? You heard this guy? And I got to be honest, I, a lot of comedy I hear, I just don't not into it. Uh, you know, I like the classics, man. I like Richard Pryor. I like Rodney Dangerfield. I like Don Rickles. <laughs> you know? Don Rickles, it's awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah, like I love the old school guys, man. Even like the you know Eddie Murphy, Delirious and Raw back in the '80s, man. Like. I just kind of, I don't know, man. Comedy doesn't really do anything for me anymore. So I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I wouldn't say I'm a fan, but, I, you know, when it comes to dice, I'm definitely a fan. Yeah, I mean, there, there's some comics that I like, but I just wouldn't, you know how, like, some people are about it. Like, that's what they do. They listen to comedy records. And, like, yeah, there's a couple people I like. Obviously, like, Bill Burr, like, Anthony Jeselnik I like, you know, Louis C.K., like, that kind of stuff, you know. But, like, I'm not someone who's going to go out to see comedy. You know what I mean? Well, we, we may we may have brought this up before, but I mean, what, we got a, the funny anecdote about us going to see Dice. <laughs> so, <laughs> my my wife bought me two tickets for my birthday, and she had no interest in seeing Dice. <laughs> so I, I was like, I knew you would want to go, you yeah. know. So you know, we go to the show. She got us really nice, like uh, sort of like whatever VIP tickets or whatever. We were like one table away from the stage, and the place was pretty small. Yeah. So part of the ticket, the VIP ticket option was you get uh, like two glasses of champagne, 
it, it two uh, two things of uh, strawberries and cream. Oh yeah, that's right. I remember the champagne, but I forgot about the strawberries and cream. <laughs> yeah, and I think both of us kind of had the same thought. Like they put it on the table, and we kind of looked at it like, all right, we better drink this shit and down <laughs> these strawberries before he gets out here, or we're gonna be he's gonna kill us. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly, man. Like, so we did. Uh, we did the noble funny. thing, and we uh, we chugged the champagne, and then killed the strawberries <laughs> and cream <laughs> before he came out there. I remember we were sharing. It was a table before, and it was me and you, and then it was this other guy with his girlfriend or his wife. You know, they, they were cool people, but yeah. um, it was uh, it was just a funny dynamic. You know, we're sitting at a dice show with like these glasses of champagne and like these little like vases of strawberries <laughs> with whipped cream. <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the only time I've ever seen Dice, you know. And um, me too. Yeah, yeah our, too. our the drummer in Tombs, Justin, is a uh, massive Dice fan, and has seen him <laughs> several times. So, um, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing Dice again at some point. Oh yeah, I would too, man. I would too. That was that was a fun that was a fun night for sure. But uh, a little background on Dice is uh, he was born Andrew Clay Silverstein. And uh, it was born in uh, in Sheepshead Bay, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn. And another interesting tidbit was that his dad used to be a boxer. Now, a quick tidbit about uh, Jewish boxers. Uh, back in the day, in the golden age of um, boxing, there was a lot of that was that was like a there was a, a an era of of high level elite Jewish boxers in New York City. And uh, you know, one of the things like. Um, I oftentimes think about boxing because I'm, I'm a huge boxing fan and how there's different eras of immigrants that come to the United States and that that's that coincides with them, the, the sort of prominence of that particular group of people in boxing, like the Irish, the Italians, the Jews, you know, Latin people, black people and all that, you know what I mean? And it's it's an interesting uh, sort of cross section of American history. Or, or specifically history, maybe in the greater New York area, because that's, I, I consider New York to have like some of the you know, richest history within boxing and, you know, prize fighting and stuff like that. Sure, sure. So, yeah, just a quick aside. It, I, yeah, I didn't realize that, you, you know, we talked about that briefly before we started recording, and I wasn't, I, didn't really, I wasn't really aware of that, but that is an interesting point. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Clay's, uh, you know, career started in 78, and, um, you know, he was trying to do his thing in, in Brooklyn in this uh, club called Pip's Comedy Club in right. Sheepshead Bay. But it wasn't until he got to L.A. that his career kind of, like, started um, started catching on with people. Yeah, he uh, relocated out there and, I guess, had, like, a regular gig at the Comedy Store, which is a pretty famous comedy club in L.A. Yeah, the Mitzi Shore uh I think there isn't there like some sort of like uh, like docu pick or docu series like uh, dramatization of uh, the the comedy store. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I forgot the name of the show. Was it an HBO show? So maybe like four years ago, five years ago. I, I, I haven't seen it, and I, I'm not really uh, planning on on watching it. But like, no, me I neither. Know, I know it way. exists out there. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Me neither. But yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. But we might as well we might as well put put it out there that the Andrew Silverstein and Andrew Dice Clay are two different people. 
Stay you know, and, and a lot of people are like, they weren't able to make that distinction, I think, in, in the early days of his career. You know, and, I think a lot of people can't make that distinction now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was, um, Dice was on the Larry King show back in 1990, which was the year that, that this record came out. And um, he actually states that Dice was a character, you know, that when he put the jacket on, that's when he became Dice. Right. You know, and, um, and that, so, so you sort of see where I'm going with this is that it's a persona. And one of the things he said is that, yeah, there are people out there who actually believe the things I say in my, in my act. And, you know, I just think it's funny, you know? Right. So it's like, I don't, I don't know. That, that To me, that's so fascinating that it, it's a role. It's a character. It's, um, you know, a, a persona. Yet people roast him and, and hate him and pick at him because of this. And they think it's the man. I think that's so interesting. Well, yeah, and I might be getting a little ahead of myself because I know we want to cover this a little bit maybe later on, but since you brought it, up, brought it up, it's like in a lot of ways it's no different than how we feel about some of the music stuff. Yeah. Um, for instance, you know, the black metal band Mayhem, we're both huge fans of and obviously have an extremely uh, checkered past in a lot oh, of yeah, ways. for sure. And uh, I, I was listening to an interview with uh, the lead vocalist, Attila and they were questioning him about some of the uh, <laughs> question, more questionable things. And he would just say, you know, it's to provoke, <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's not all the, you know, Slayer aren't Satanists, you know, but some people can't figure that out. Just like what you're saying with dice is like dice is a, is not Andrew Clay Silverstein. It's a character he plays on stage as a stand-up comic or in a movie or on a TV show. But there are people, probably like pretty low intelligence level people, I would assume, that, that can't make that distinction. You know, and I just think it's, uh, I think it's funny. Yeah, and like one, one of the things that Larry King mentioned in this interview is like, you know, Eddie Murphy didn't seem to be getting like, uh, you know, the hatred that Dice was getting at the time. You know what I mean? And uh, and Dice right. is like, yeah, because he's he's Eddie Murphy when he goes on stage. You know what I mean? And it's like right. I'm not I'm a different guy, basically. So, right. yeah, right. So when I when I when I'm sort of gravitating towards is like the day the laughter died that the record and and that stands out is like the idea of provoking the audience, you know. And you and I both like confrontational music, obviously. Right. And the day the laughter died is almost like it's the same as like listening to like you know a, a fucking Godflesh record or something like that in some ways because it's there to like provoke a response out of people. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like uh, <laughs> yeah, like you know, someone maybe someone who's never heard like uh, a Bethlehem album, you know, or a, a Portal album, like it's jarring. You know, yeah, and I, I think there's a similar dynamic happening, especially with the the day the laughter died album, which is my favorite comedy album of all time. <laughs> just a couple quick uh, notes about that, just some some details about the release. So it was released on March 14th, 1990, on Deaf American, which coincidentally is a label that also put out records by Slayer and Danzig. You know, as you mentioned, yep. Um, 
recorded at Dangerfields, December 26th and 27th, 1989. So literally the day after Christmas. (laughs) He recorded these live sets. This is like part of his holiday experience, I guess. (laughs) And uh, program length is one hour and 42 minutes. Now let that let that I'm gonna let that sit out there for a while, okay? One hour, almost two hours of this abuse that he meted out to this uh, this audience that he had. <laughs> well, that is definitely uh, that's a chunk of time, and uh, I know we're not really gonna get into the part two that was recorded in 1993, right? So so much, but just in comparison. That was like the same idea. It was recorded over two days at Dangerfield. Same kind of idea, but it was only an hour and nine minutes. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, an hour and 42 minutes is a long time for anything, especially an experience that is really, it's really uncomfortable at times. Definitely. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I'm going to say that um, The Day the Laughter Died is a highly conceptual record. You know, and, and, you know maybe I'm being a jerk off about it and like, Putting, putting words in, you know, like coming up my own narrative here, but I kind of think I'm right about that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, like, you think it's more like almost like performance art rather than stand-up comedy? Or? 100%, man. I think yeah. that the entire thing itself is, is, the, is the bit. You know, I don't think that it's like a collection of bits. I think the one hour and 42 minutes is the joke. Because of the what he did in that time period, I agree. I mean, you know, it's I don't, I don't know this for sure, but the, the story for years is that he was intentionally bombed. You know, like uh, he just went out there, and uh, you know, from what they say, it was largely improvised because there's very few bits in there. Where if you listen to like, his first his self titled album, Dice, or any of his HBO specials leading up to this. He doesn't really cover any of that ground. It's not like he's going up there and doing his routine. Um, and, you know, also the size of the room. I mean, a year or two before this, he sold out two nights at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Only comic at the time to ever do that. And then this room, this Dangerfields room, I mean, I've never been in there before. All I understand, it's like, was it like 100 capacity or yeah, something Yeah, it's like small. That? It's a very, very, very modestly sized uh, venue. Let's say. So when 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 he's when some of these jokes are bombing or there's a lot of uncomfortable silence <laughs> on the record, or you hear like one guy laughing, or or one guy laughing and then one like people get up and walk out, and then he's they're insulting each other as they're walking out, like they're insulting him, he's insulting them. It's it's a very confrontational uh, record. You know, and he actually says at some point on the album that I, I have no idea what the next word out of my mouth is going to be. So yeah. It's like, yeah. like here I'm just freestyling. You know, I think I think he says I don't know, I don't know what you're laughing about, or I don't know what I'm talking about, and you don't know what you're laughing about. Yeah, and um, <laughs> but all, but also like I was saying, you know, I to me, I you know my my thesis on this whole thing is that this it was like a performance art piece, you know, and also. He, at right. some point, he says, this show isn't about laughter. It's about comedy. Yes. And that got the wheels in my mind working. Because I would listened to this a couple of days ago just to prep for this. And I was like, oh, that's interesting that he differentiates laughter from comedy. So I, uh, I went to the dictionary. 
And I looked oh, up wow. I looked up dark humor, okay? <laughs> and it says by definition, it's a style of comedy that makes light of subject matter that is generally considered taboo. Hmm. Including themes of of the genre include death, violence, discrimination, disease, and human sexuality. And I would say most of that stuff is covered in his uh, his act. So it's like, by yeah. definition, it's dark dark humor, and also the fact that he had no real framework of what he was going to say made it a completely like free jazz experience that lasted almost two hours. <laughs> it's like it's like a sunrise set for yeah. comedy. I mean, and I don't think I'm wrong when I say these things. I think I'm like pretty much on the wavelength of like what this whole like that. Like if you think about what we just said, you said that that same year earlier that, you know, in 89 or whatever, he sold out two consecutive nights at Madison Square Garden. So, right. And he was doing his, his hardcore comedy bits like he was doing the rhymes and all that. And right, right, right. You know, and he had a very well refined thing he was doing. And uh, so then right off the heels of that, he's in a 100-capacity room making shit up right. off. Or maybe not making it up on the spot, but he wasn't following a script like he might have been following at these larger venue shows. Right, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the year, uh, a couple of years before that, his self-titled, his first uh, comedy album, sold over 500,000 copies just in the U.S., who the, I mean, does any does anyone sell five hundred thousand copies of anything anymore anywhere? <laughs> I doubt it. No, definitely no. And um, I mean, him making that choice to do that at Dangerfield, I, I, I believe that was a choice, and I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. You know, it wasn't like he was trying to go up there and, and play the Garden again. I think he was, I think he was, he was making his concept album. You know, he was making his Pink Floyd The Wall. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Basically, that's what, what I, I believe that, you know, and, and um, yeah, I guess like part of like what we're trying to do, like, I, there's like a little bit of a theme that you and I get into on these on these particular shows where it's like stuff that you might just dismiss is definitely has has value at sometimes. And maybe you should take a second look at something, you know, and, and kind of really analyze like what's actually going on. You know, it's not just some guy talking shit. There's like there's a thing going on that he's trying to do. And sometimes like I imagine in like in this genre of comedy, like there's definitely some funny stuff on there and things that, that are thought provoking, you know? Sure. And maybe he, you need that kind of space, that kind of, uh, you know, flow of consciousness expression to come to these ideas. Like, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, like how, um, you go up there and you perform every night. Boom, boom, boom. It's the same bits. You know, you got everything down to a well-oiled machine. But if right. you're just given like a, a, an expanse of time, okay, here you go. Do something within this period of time. And you don't go up there. You might have a couple of just, you know, maybe some concepts you want to open with. And you got some framework, a little bit of just a, a skeleton of an idea. What you come up with is like, pretty fucking balls that's like ballsy man to go up there like that and just see what happens you know i agree i, I think even more so with uh 
a stand-up comic because I mean you're you're up there naked. There's nothing to hide behind, man. There's no guitars. There's no drums. <laughs> you know, there's no yeah. there's no other other people behind you or to the side of you. It's like uh, that that's gonna you're completely vulnerable up there. You know, so it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, you know, the other thing too, and we go into this uh, from time to time on a lot of episodes too. I mean, me and you are both fans of a lot of, a lot of art. I'm just going to say art encompassing, you know, whether it's music, movies, books, comedy, whatever it is of, of, of controversial art. Yeah. I would say <laughs> that for sure. You know, and I think we, uh, we've asked this before in the past. Like, all right, in 1989, this guy put out his first, his self-titled comedy album, Dice. It goes gold, selling over 500,000 copies. Obviously, people liked it and were buying it. Now, if he put out this album today, could, the, could, could he even put out an album today? Never mind selling 500,000 copies. Could, could he achieve the kind of success today that he did back then, being with a culture, you know, the woke cancel culture, uh, you know, a, attack on, on freedom of speech and freedom of expression in a lot of ways? Um, I don't think he could. And I think we've asked this question before about whether I forgot what it was about, maybe some kind of a film or a band or something. But um, I think, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but I think me and you are both frustrated about, you know, the, the way things are censored today and are canceled or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Um, I don't think he could exist in, or uh, he could exist, but I don't think he could be successful if his career started today. I think that, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I am very much frustrated with the way so certain people express themselves about controversial stuff that they don't agree with. And I think that, but in, in some ways, I also feel like there's a majority of people out there who don't care about shit like that. You know what I mean? I think that online, everyone with a Twitter account that's like furiously typing away are the ones that make it seem like that's the world we live in because they get just reinforced by their own people with the same ideas. I think like social media, like the medium cultivates that kind of thought pattern, you know, but in the, in the, in the world, I think that there's still a lot of people who want it, who are, would support something like clay, like dice clay. I hope you're right. No, I, I can tell you right now that like when, when I'll, and I'm not a fan of this band because I don't think their music's very good, but uh, Inquisition, when they, oh, okay. they, they've been in and out of all kinds of controversies. True. You know? And the first time around when they were being accused of being Nazis, right, they played Maryland Death Fest that year. And um, they weren't thrown off the bill. Uh, I didn't go. But my co-host at Necromaniacs, Mike Scandato, went. And he reported back to me. And he's like, you know, despite all the controversy and being accused of being Nazis, that room was packed when they played. Huh. So I'm like, do you think, like, if someone tried to cancel Kid Rock, do you think that would matter at all to him? Or his <laughs> well, fans? that was my next question. That was going to be my next thing. Because, like, you know, the Inquisition, like, yes, they're, you know, they're a successful band. But they're not selling five hundred thousand copies. Like they're never gonna, they're never gonna be like Slipknot or, no. or or like Pantera or whatever. Like, I guess maybe my rephrase my question: Could 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 Dice exist? I, I'm sure, but could he exist? Could he sell out two nights at Madison Square Garden and sell five hundred thousand? Well, I don't think anyone can do that now in this day and age. You know what I mean? Like that's that's just like 
an impossible that that's like a like comedians aren't really able to do that today you know because like you got to also remember that back in the late 80s a lot of it had to do with being in movies and you know it's just comedy is like in a different spot right now and and a lot of those people aren't achieving like that mega stardom that guys like dice clay and eddie murphy were able to do like they were able to you know convert their comedy career into being film stars you know true True. Yeah. But uh, but I think like a, like I just once again because I know Dave Mustaine threw Dave Ellison out of the band recently right. and out of Megadeth for he's like jerking off online or something like that. <laughs> and I'm just like, like, that's so fucking stupid, man. And because I I gotta believe like, who the fuck cares, man? You know, I but, like I don't think a mega I don't think that Marilyn Manson got canceled, right? In another year, in an, he did. In another okay. year, he's going to go on tour, and there's going to be sold out shows. Well, all right. Well, you're, you're probably right. I, um, I I will bet fifty dollars that I'm right. I I really believe that man because I I really do think that this weird culture that we live in is an online Twitter world. Because I got to be honest, dude. I don't fuck around on Twitter. I barely go on Facebook just to promote this show, basically, and like promote right. stuff for the band. I fuck around on Instagram, but I look at cats, you know, and like animal <laughs> video, you know, that kind of stuff. I like all follow all these like cat pages and like, you know, MMA stuff and Muay Thai and like my friends and bands I right. like. I don't, I don't, I guess if I, I only see these cancel things when people tell me about them you know what i mean and like i don't i don't know how much it's actually really affecting like if you're a comedian you know or if you're you're like a film person and you're trying to cross over into the world of like regular people and like you know you're gonna you're gonna have problems i imagine you know but in the world that you and i live in that shit doesn't matter man like it never fucking did a thing to anybody. All this like controversy, it never affected anyone. Watain, there was like controversy about them. Right. They played up. No one stopped going to see them. You know, none no, of those bands. None of those, yeah, none of those, no one that affected their career not at all. True. So I think that, and it's it's always been that way. Like even back in the eighties, you know what I mean? It's always been the fringe, where it doesn't matter. You know, like, do you think like, uh, you know, back in the 80s, there was like this whole, you know, PMRC bullshit that was going on. Right. That didn't affect anyone's career. As a matter of fact, it probably made kids want to buy like Judas Priest records even more. It definitely did. You know, and I think (laughs) this controversy probably might help some people, you know, in some ways. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, from doing a little bit of research on the day the laughter died and uh, part one and two if you kind of look at the, the timeline on it, a lot of people will say the day the laughter died, the first, the original one was the beginning of the end of his extremely successful career. I mean, you know, he still has a career, obviously. Um, he's not selling out Madison square garden and has it in a long, long time. Um, but there were after he, he, the self-titled album came out, the one that went gold and all that in uh, 1989, that was followed by a lot of, uh, vitriol from people right. and a lot of ba- a lot of backlash um there's a few uh, examples 
September of 1989, he performed a three-minute set at the MTV Video Music Awards. Remember those used to be a big deal? Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Which included, he threw in his adult nursery rhymes. Yeah. (laughs) The Mother Goose. Uh, That three-minute performance led to MTV imposing a lifetime ban on him. Sure. Which I I thought was fucking ridiculous. Um, (laughs) Then in in 1990, like, you know, less than a year later, um, May of 1990, appeared on Saturday Night Live. Right. Um, One of the cast members back then, Nora Dunn, was, was put off by his act, refused to appear in that episode. And then two days later, musical guest Sinead O'Connor canceled her scheduled appearance in protest to his, quote-unquote, sexist act. Right. Um, So there's just like, you know, there's all these little things where it's like, no, like, he still has a career and people still go to see him. But, like, all these people, like, you know, banning him for life or his people refusing to perform on a show. Did that, did that kind of lead to more of like the downward slope of his career than the day the laughter died? Did. It seems like people didn't like the fact that he was successful and immediately successful. You know, it'd be one thing if he was playing comedy clubs. I don't think anyone gives a fuck, right? It's like, Wattain's a big band, but they're they're like a big underground black metal band. You know, they, they'll play like a thousand capacity theater. They're not, they're not playing Madison Square Garden. Right, but oh. but what what you just said is exactly like people are always have always been critical of extreme shit. You know what I mean? The thing yeah. that's different between today and yesterday was where that's coming from. You know what I mean? It's like back in the day, it was like these like ultra conservative people who are clutching their pearls because someone's telling a joke about eating ass. You know what I mean? Right. And and it was like the kind of like lefty like progressives who are like all about free speech and you know like obviously with Dice Clay there was probably like he probably really pissed off like women who thought he was sexist which right. is that's a little bit of a different overtone you know what what I'm talking about but today there's like a complete inversion over who is like trying to be the champion quote unquote and I'm using the air quotes. <laughs> of quote-unquote free speech. You know what I mean? In the last, like, 15 years, the left has been attacking free speech more than any conservative. And and look, I'm not trying to, like, underscore some right-wing agenda because the right is lying right now about what they're considering free speech. Right. You know, but the left is also giving them a some ammunition, like some another thing to connect to, oh, well, look what they're, they're canceling Louis C.K., you know, and now they're canceling Donald Trump for lying and, it's, and trying to overthrow the government, you know, and claiming that's a, free, a First Amendment thing. Right. You know, but it's a fucking lie. You know, it's like, it's like but, but both sides are fucking up, if you ask me. No, I agree. I mean, they take whatever stance works for them. They don't. They don't really have any conviction or back any stance. They take whatever stance they feel is going to push their agenda. Or, you know, which, you know, that's that's why politics in general sucks. Yeah, but 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 for for 
forever censorship has been like a conservative reaction to culture yes until today but today it's it's not even true free speech it's basically the right to tell lies like okay we want to use the first amendment to fucking conceal all this bullshit that we're trying to propagate as the truth like QAnon and the fact that like you know their idea, this concept that there's like these alien, like, you know, reptilian overlords or whatever the fuck they believe and that, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, won the election and, you know, all this fake shit. But the progressives have like, through their, you know, canceling of guys like Louis C.K. and censoring and all this other stuff, they can say, oh, well, look what they did to your guy. Now look what they're doing to us. And, you know, we're really, you know, constitutional, uphold, constitutionally motivated by this stuff. But it's like, it's fucking lies, you know. And, and the thing, the, the takeaway from the whole thing is that no culture thrives with any form of censorship, you know. Like you can go back to all the falls, the, the, the rise of any authoritative, authoritarian regime. It starts with censorship. Right. You know, so I, I don't know. It's just like, that. all that stuff feels like it connects with the Dice Clay stuff in some way. Yeah, well, it, do, it does, yeah. you know. I, I, think the, I think this topic in general, you know, it's the censor, censorship, free speech topic is it's something that, you know, it's important to us because, because we're such fans of, you know, out-of-the-box art. Yeah. You know, you know and, and it's like, yeah, I mean, I the, the thing is that maybe, maybe it was an anomaly that Dice got so gigantic, you know, and was able to, but you know, that's, that's like, um, I mean, if you think about how, I mean, he, he set records, like there was really no one before him who was able to do numbers like that, you know, and maybe that's yeah. like a weird anomaly that happened. And like, the reality is that his really off, offbeat, dark humor is kind of existing where it should. You know, it's not for everybody, clearly. Right. It kind of kind of found its place over yeah. time. You know, just like you were saying, like, Watain's like an underground black metal band. But it's like, those guys do this for a living, man. Like, they're making a living right. with their music. And sure, they're not going to be, uh, you know, winning a Grammy in the United States. You know, they're not going to have that sort of thing. But that's not what they're really the, the appropriate place for them, you know? You know, the fact of the matter is too like uh, I don't want them to get that big. <laughs> no, I, I mean I, I wish they. I mean I, if they could and still do exactly what they do, that'd be that'd be great because I wish right. everyone success at their creative endeavors. You know what I mean? But it's like, you know, I don't think it's it's just not ever going to happen. I mean, you you know what it's like in the fucking pits of this country. You know, people are <laughs> yeah, they, yes, they, they they tell themselves all sorts of lies, man. Right. You know? Yeah. I, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, it's funny how, like, he was huge. And then within the course of, like, a couple of years, man, it, like, it was, you know, pretty much gone. Yeah, but then, like, he ended up acting in, in a Woody Allen film, Blue Jasmine. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I, I'm not. True. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the guy's still relevant, really. You know, he had the, the Showtime show. I think there was, like, two or two seasons of that. You know, and and I mean, he's still out there doing his thing, man. You know, it's like a good a good comparison would maybe be uh, Blue Oyster Cult. 
Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a New York band. I mean, they were selling out stadiums, you know, when they, when they put out their first few albums, or maybe not their first few, but like early on in their career, you know. Uh, and they're not doing that anymore, and haven't done that for years. But they still have a viable career. They're playing small theaters. They're playing, yeah. you know, fairs. They're playing uh, whatever. BB uh, Kings in Times Square. I went to see them there a few years back. Um, so they, yeah, they're still doing it, but like you know, they didn't, they don't have the same success that they once had, and that happens to a lot of people, uh, whether it be musicians, con- you know, actors, uh, stand-up comics, whatever. Uh, I, I just wonder how much of that was in the control of like people not liking what he was saying, uh, as opposed to just a natural kind of regression of. You know, well, like you said, maybe that was an anomaly type thing. I wonder if there was other hands pulling the strings that just didn't want him to be that successful anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think the media probably had something to do with it. You know, I mean, they're they're gonna like you know jump, they're gonna like try to like follow whatever the the consensus of people is. You know, and it's like and like in general, you know, we live in a conservative fucking world, man. It's like no one wants to, you know, like uh, you know, (laughs) what's uh, what's the face. 2000 he put out a record called face down ass up i mean that that's i mean of course not that's not something that some fucking middle american you know douchebag is going to be oh this is this is for me you know some god-fearing you know like holy roller they're going to see that and think the devil made it you know what i mean (laughs) the devil is involved you know? Not doing himself any favors with an album title like that, <laughs> right? But, but that—that's the beauty of it, though. You know what I mean? And it's like, in the '80s, there was, that, and this is why I think it was an anomaly. I mean, that was like, you know, yeah, there was some great music out in the '80s. You know, we loved like a Slayer and like you know Iron Maiden and all that stuff. But like, by and large, music kind of sucked in the '80s. You know what I mean? It was like. Yeah, yeah you know, I mean, I like, I mean, I love Madonna, you know what I mean? But she's maybe an exception to popular music. You know, like Britney Spears was like fucking huge. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And like, that's kind of what people like is bullshit, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah. In large numbers. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's that's no, kind of what, what the world they want to live in is a world of just fucking safety and lies and perception, you know? I mean, you know, there's definitely a lot of downtime for him, for Dice, you know, post Day of the Laughter Die too. Uh, but you know, like you said, he was in some movies, it was in some TV shows, and his career has started to seem to come back a little. I want to ask you, did you? I never got a chance to see this, and I, although I have Showtime, I couldn't find it on demand. Did you ever watch any of his? Yeah. TV show. Yeah. No, they were funny. Yeah, I heard they. Were, I heard they were amazing. I never watched them, and then I tried to find them this week. And Showtime doesn't have them on their on demand, or at least I couldn't find. Wow, really? I see. I don't really. I I have the Showtime app, but I don't watch it that often. And I've seen. Okay. I think. I think I've seen both. I think there's only two seasons, and I've seen both of them. I don't know if there's a third. Yeah, I think it said there was 13 episodes over the course of two years. But what what you're saying about whether like your your idea that there might have been some hidden hand behind destroying his career. I think that's more likely today than back in the '90s. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I just, it's, it just seems like it, it was like it went down awfully fast. <laughs> you know, well, I, I mean, just... you, you, we said it that you know he put out this this like performance art record 
you know, and right. every, even at the show, if you listen to the regular, people wanted to do the limericks. They wanted to do the, 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 the nursery rhymes. Exactly. And he's like, I'm not doing that tonight, you know, and it's like, <laughs> you know, I did that the other night, you know, and it's like, yeah, well, even he was probably getting, you know what, I don't want to be a fucking monkey up there doing what people tell me to do, which I could respect. You know? Well, right, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, you've been uh, fairly successful bands enough, man. Like you play, you know, you go, you're playing a show and someone's yelling out a song from an album you recorded nine years ago and you don't want to fucking play that song, more than likely. You know what I yeah, mean? I mean, you know, I, when when we saw him in in, in Stamp, was a Stanford, Bridgeport. Bridgeport. Did yeah. he do some of those rhymes? He did. He did a few of them, right? But it was like kind of like, he's like, all right, okay. You know, I mean, yeah, because, you know, he, right, right. It's like, you know, uh, when ACDC plays, they got to play fucking Back in Black. Or... Exactly. <laughs> and I guarantee you, those guys, they know where, what side of the bread they're, they get their butter. You know what I mean? Right. But they right. probably are like, oh, my God, not again. We got to play fucking <laughs> right. shoot the thrill or something like that, you know. And it's like right. I, that can get old, man. You know, you, uh, fucking ACDC has been around, what, almost 50 fucking years. <laughs> Imagine, like, you got to right. play TNT for 50 fucking years. <laughs> that song like that. fucking is sick. But. Right. If I would have had to play that song every night on tour for 50 years, I would be like, all right, we got to, you know, this is enough's enough. You know what I mean? So Dice with his limericks, right. he goes out on tour. And how many times, like, he, he probably is so disgusted by doing that every night. And then he makes a record, like, the day the laughter dies. And it's like, all right, that's over. Now we're doing something else. And maybe that's, you know, like, okay. You know, like it happens in, in bands' careers too. You see musicians do that shit. They make those first two albums that are sick and everyone loves it. And then no one buys their follow up records. You know right. what I mean? And then they, they're sure. stuck in that cycle of playing, uh, you know, like whatever this, the hit song was from the album every night on tour. Everyone wants to hear, you know, especially if you're a band who's got like one song that everyone knows, you know? Right. Right. So, but I, you know, it's like the cyclical nature of, sh of entertainment, really. You know what I mean? It's just like everything's got a peak in a valley. Yeah. I, yeah. I just, I just hate to think about uh, anybody, not, not specifically what we're talking about with Dice, but just anybody overall can't just go out there and say what they want to say and, and do their thing. And listen, man, there's a lot of shit I don't agree with, you know, but I, I don't try to stop anyone from doing their thing. You know, unless you're you're harming somebody, yeah. Uh, few exceptions, obviously, but like any band, any fucking whatever, comedian, any artist, like that's what art is. You know, I'm kind of of the opinion that like, like I'm, I'm going to maintain that like I think that just the online hatred is different than real life hatred because even when I you, a couple of years ago I had that guy from Metal Sucks on. Yes. And even him, he admitted that he rocks out when they play Pantera on the jukebox. Right? Exactly. And I he's like the, the biggest, he's like the guy, he's the first one to raise his hand and define Phil Anselmo as a Nazi. You know what I mean? Yeah, but exactly. in secret, he goes to the fucking show. You know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's so hypocritical that you get some champion out there leading the charge up the hill. Yeah, they're Nazis, racist, homophobia, sexist. But then, like, when that band comes to town, they're fucking there at the show. And 
Yeah, dude, and that's and I fucking hate that. Yeah, you know, and that that's exactly what I'm trying to say, man. You know what I mean? It's like, it's yeah, like a, a it's a it's a it's a work. You know what I mean? It's like pro some pro wrestling shit. You know, and that's like the most infuriating thing about it. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I remember when uh, a few years ago I posted something on Instagram about um, dragged across concrete, right? Yeah. And uh, you know Mel Gibson's in that movie, okay? Okay. Some guys like, oh, so we're okay with Mel Gibson? And I'm like, douchebag, you know, like, <laughs> like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Like this. What about everyone else involved in the fucking movie? Like F. Scott Zoller, the guy who wrote the script and directed it. What about, uh, you know, the guy, the camera guy? What about the craft services guy? What about all the editors? You know, it, what, one, because you don't like Mel Gibson, everyone else has got to suffer and, and not get paid because you, you, you have, like, you're clutching your pearls over this guy's personal life. And it's probably the same guy who is going to fucking post that comment about you watching Dragged Across Concrete, and then he's going to go watch Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Made by Roman, Pol- made by Roman, Polanski, Roman Polanski. right? Who, exactly. Well, I'm a fan of his movies. Yeah, I'm a fan of Robert yeah. Polanski's. You know, I mean, yeah. do I do I agree with uh, you know what happened with him? You know, back in the day, no. But but I can separate the art from the artist, and I just think I, I just hate the idea of art being censored. Look, I, well, I think that you know molesting kids is definitely a bad thing. You know, for sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, but let's let's Are also. Let's also take a step back and understand that Roman Polanski's wife and baby were killed by the Manson family. Okay? Think about that for a minute. All right? And I'm not saying this 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 like justifies anything, but for a minute, imagine if you had a pregnant wife and the Manson family came into your house and murdered her and it became this gigantic media event with like a a sensational uh, you know, trial, people writing books, you're existing in the culture as part of this horrific event. How does that affect you as a person? Like, what damage does that do to you psychologically? No, I can't. I mean, can you, who the fuck right? could even live through something like that? You're not the same person ever, ever again, man. You know? No, I mean, that's, yeah, obviously, that's a... a severely traumatic event that is gonna, is gonna affect you and, uh, yeah somehow. i'm not saying that that justifies him touching kids or anything like that no. that's uh, not remotely what i'm saying but what i'm saying is like like who like who knows what emotional damage that dude has you know it's like and and right. you know it's on him to get help obviously but you know it's like i don't know man you know what i'm trying to say i'm just talking shit man you know it's hey. just it is what it, you know, that's how i feel Side note, uh, nothing to do with our conversation. But since uh, you brought up Manson, uh, I finally have been able to find some find somewhere I can watch the the Manson movie that Jim uh, Jim Van Beaver wrote. Oh, oh shit! You could have borrowed it from me, man. I have it on DVD. Oh, all right. So I, I should watch this, right? It's good, dude. Yo, it's the greatest Manson thing ever made. Okay. Yeah. I I couldn't find it to buy anywhere. I couldn't find it on any streaming services. Finally, I realized it was, they put it back up on Prime the other day to rent. So. <laughs> oh wow, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna check that out. Sorry. Um, you know no, what? Nothing to Hon- do with what we're talking about. No, honestly, man, like 
I have the one I have, the version I have has like mad extra stuff on it, like interviews and all this shit. So oh, okay. you should you should definitely watch the one I have. Oh, okay. All right. I'll take yeah. you up on that for it's, sure. So it's, it's fucking great, you know, and and I love Jim Van Bever. And he's a guy probably too? someone's gonna talk shit about too, I'm sure. I'm um, sure. <laughs> you know? But you know, at this stage of my life, I, I just don't care, man. It's like, you know, not everyone's, you know, people got skeletons in their closet, darkness, you know, and, and look at the kind of thing that we're, we're talking about. We're talking about extreme shit, you know, right. people that, that gravitate towards this type of stuff and create this kind of art have darkness that is in their lives somehow, you know? Hey, what do you think the chances are we could get dice on the show? Probably very, to the very minus 4,000, I imagine. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if you're, I've found this out this week, too. Uh, he launched his own podcast in September 2018. Uh, did, did you know about that? Yeah, but wasn't it, isn't it behind some kind of paywall or something like that? I'm not sure, but the name of the podcast was amazing. Do you remember what it's called? No. It's called... I'm over here now. Oh shit! <laughs> which, which is a, a common term that you know when I was part of the Tombs universe, we used to say that a lot. You know? Yeah, no, that was like, <laughs> I'm over here now. Yeah, which, yeah. which I believe we just stole from uh, the movie Casino. Correct. That I mean that that is a very uh, common Italian American, uh, you know, part of the speech patterns of. Uh, East Coast Italian Americans, so it's not surprising that you know, it, it found its way into like Casino and various Martin Scorsese films, and the uh, Dice Clay, who's Jewish but is posing as an Italian American in his act. So yeah, right. I'm over here now. You know, <laughs> I love how he he's uh, he cites like his you know his, his influences, like me and you might be. Yeah, yeah, it's Celtic Frost. Fucking I hate God. His influences are El- Elvis, the Fonz, John Travolta, and Sylvester Stallone. Well, actually, <laughs> you mentioned John Travolta. Apparently, like back in the 70s when he was crafting his persona, he started out as a um, guy who did impressions as part of his act. And, oh, okay. And he would like segue from, uh, you know, from Jerry Lewis into John Travolta as Barbarino. Really? Yeah, that was kind of the the birth of the the Dice Man. Huh. I wonder if there's any footage of that on YouTube. Oh man, I, I maybe. I mean, you know, back we're talking like 1978. So I mean, it would be some right. Like I don't even know if they had video camcorders back then. <laughs> yeah, like they would not. literally have to make a, a Super Eight film of him performing this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, if it was if it was on like the Johnny Carson show, there probably would be. But no, oh, he wasn't. This doing, is he wasn't before on he had. Yeah, he wasn't even yeah. on that stuff back then. He was performing in that Pips comedy Pips, thing in right. Sheep's Head Bay back then. Well, another thing uh, forgot to mention. I probably should mention before, like beginning of his career. He he he's he started playing drums at age seven, and then he worked as a drummer in the Catskill Mountain Circuit. My my <laughs> dad city. my dad used to my dad told me. Uh, a term that they referred to the Catskills and they were back. My dad being a guy who grew up and lived most of his life in the Bronx, the Catskills was oftentimes referred to as the Jewish Alps. <laughs> really? 
Well, yeah, that that's a very um, and and I having um, you know, being in a relationship with a, a Jewish woman, uh, that's a lot of like summer camp type settings, like uh, where a lot of the people that were uh, you know the like the Jewish community in New York City would have summer homes up in the in the Catskills, and there was a lot of like uh, you know like functions and summer camps and things like that where like right. kids from, you know, Jewish kids from Brooklyn would go up there and, and do their summers up there. And they, they even made a, there was a film about something like that, like where, um, you know, like Viggo Mortensen's in this movie. I can't remember the name of the film. It's like Map of the Stars or some shit like that. It's like some kind of like, you know, movie. That, oh, you know. no, it's a Cronenberg movie. No, right? that's not it, man. That's, that's actually a different film, but it's, uh, oh, okay. Walk on the Moon. That's what it's called. Ah, all right. No, I never yeah, heard of Viggo that. Mortensen's in it. Lev Schreiber. Um, yeah, it's it's all actually uh, Dirty Dancing is I think another type of film that takes place in the Catskills. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, there, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was funny. Like before he returned, uh, you know, back to Brooklyn, started uh, honing his chops at that that Pips uh, that hole in the wall nightclub down there. He did. He played. You know, was playing drums in these bands, playing bar mitzvahs and weddings under uh, under the name Clay Silvers. Clay, Clay <laughs> Silvers. That's a good name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pretty. I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty funny. It, you know, you would see him from time to time, and there was a couple of his specials where he would play drums. Um, yeah, actually, one of his sons is a musician, and he plays drums. Yes, and I think he sometimes he incorporates them into the act as well. I've uh, seen some footage with his son on stage, and there's like a guitar player, and Dice is up there. <laughs> Jam. Yeah, yeah they're, they're covering uh, Death in June songs. <laughs> As a drummer, uh, I don't think drum, that's not a lot of drums happening, except for those like militant march songs that they have, you know? Yeah, that's true. Well, hey, dude, maybe if, you know, if Toombs is ever in a pinch again, you know, you need someone to fill in for Justin, you know? Imagine if like Dice was like the sickest, like like plays like the sickest blast beats. <laughs> no, I can't actually. <laughs> can't imagine that. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I'd like to get him on the show. You know, we'll see. Maybe a few more years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a lot of things I wish for too. You know, and sadly they'll never be realized. <laughs> Do you think we could we maybe we can't get dice, but maybe maybe we could get Clay Silvers on the show? We could probably find a guy named Clay Silvers that'll come on and talk to us. <laughs> oh, not okay. So not Andrew, no. Dice Clay Silvers. So nope. Just I don't think that's realistic. <laughs> maybe there's some guy like Hoboken and Clay Silvers. You know, fucking <laughs> get him on the show. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, I think uh, you know that's it, man. About uh, <laughs> about dice and free speech, and uh, you know the day the comment, the day the laughter died. You know that's that's. Um, you know, I think we did it. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know how many people are even going to listen to this episode because once they see it's about Andrew Dice Clay, they're probably just going to like gloss over it. But no, yeah, you know, I, I mean, uh, people, you say that all the time, man. But it's like, <laughs> wh why wouldn't they listen to this? It's about a fucking cultural icon, you know. Well, where, where I was going with that is I, I would like to uh, get some feedback from people. 
you know, if they have any opinions on, on dice or someone is a fan or isn't a fan or, you know, I, I'd like to get some feedback on this one from, from some people out there. Um, being he's such a controversial figure and, uh, you know. Yeah, but also you got to also keep in mind, too, that, uh, you know, this this is not this podcast does not have the cross section of our society that say like a, a real show would have where there's like, you know, people that listen to this, I imagine are into, you know, extreme music and weird shit and stuff that's off color, you know? And it's not true. like someone who has never heard of like Burzum is listening to this podcast. You know what I mean? <laughs> but right. But there still might be people, uh, who just aren't fans. And yeah, that's true. Just yeah. be curious if, they, if they're not fans because they just don't think he's funny. Like, I don't yeah, think a lot of comedians I, I are funny. You. Yeah, no, you know what I mean? I like, like our, our mutual friend Jeff, you know? He's not a fan. Well, Je- Jeff, you know, he, he's got a more refined palette for comedy, I think, than you and I do. That's fair. You know, he's like uh, more highbrow about stuff like that, you know? And it is what it is, you know, with him. Yeah. But, uh, I, like but yeah. the, I, <laughs> I like the lowest common denominator stuff, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I, I wouldn't say that I, I'm knowledgeable with comedy, so I'd probably go for the low-hanging fruit, really. Right. <laughs> right. You know? Cool. All right. But, yeah, thanks for listening. And, um, yeah, if you haven't heard this record, definitely after listening to this show, I, you know, check it out. And, and with the things that we said, if you haven't heard this before, listen to it and let us know what, you, what your thoughts are. You know, I, I unlike uh, some people out there, I welcome differing opinions, and I think that everyone should be able to express themselves. So, you know, I won't be offended. Yeah. I don't care if people agree with me or not. You know, that's, that's that's the way life is. That was well put. I guess that's kind of what I was trying to say. Was maybe more like this particular record, "The Day the Laughter Died," Part One, the original one. If no one's ever heard this, whether you're a fan of Dice, or well, you've probably heard it. If you're not a fan, but you're a fan of comedy, I think people should listen to this record because it's it's so it's such an anomaly. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, it's it's like the same like, way that we like that uh, the Werner Herzog Bad Lieutenant film. You know, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, it's an experience either way. I guess I'm more interested to see what people feel, how people feel about that particular album. Than I than I do of Dice's career overall, or if they're fans or not fans. I think that album is so interesting. Um, yeah, I guess I'm looking for more feedback on that than his career overall. Yeah, because like honestly, for me personally, whenever this record comes up, it's always like preaching to the choir because everyone everyone in Tombs loves this album, and right. uh, Randy loves it, and most people I hang out with love this record. So it's like, you know. Um, it, it, there's I don't hear any other opinions. Actually, when uh, there's whenever I, I I used to go to this like retro fitness place in Brooklyn in Williamsburg to lift weights occasionally, and yep. I would play this on my headphones while I was lifting <laughs> weights. That's interesting. Yeah, like because you know they have like the worst music playing in a gym. So I most people are like listen to Sick of It All or Crowbar or something, and you're listening to David uh, After Died to work out. It's amazing. Well, it was great because of the people that were there, too. You know, it's like I, I needed a buddy, like, in that gym who was... Right. Uh, so I had dice. Brought dice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
All right, guys. We'll uh, talk to you soon, man. Have a good week, and we'll see you next week. Take care now.